Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from the Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. Today we are joined by JMK Award winner and director Roy Alexander-Wise. Roy, thanks for popping in this afternoon. No problem, thank you. And congratulations again on winning the JMK Award. Has it sunk in? I guess it has. Um, yeah, yeah, it has sunk in. It sunk in a little while back, actually. Um, it's been something I've had my eyes on for um, a few years as a younger director, um, you know, assisting other people and kind of going, I don't know how, quite how I'm going to do this, but one day I want to win that award and join that kind of league of incredible slightly superstar directors because <laughs> <laughs> you were a runner-up two years ago weren't you yes i was was that a bit gutting or did it give you oh more motivation god. to oh to, god. To, to win it it was so so gutting especially because <laughs> i was like this production is so sick mm-hmm. it's like so amazing uh, and i was just like ah oh. it i mean it's harder than probably like not getting through the first round i think because it's a really really rigorous process as well like you've you've kind of got to go through the writing phase where you kind of like communicate all of your ideas and why the play's important, all of that. And then you've got to assemble a whole team together, put budgets together, research for the design together. <clears throat> and then you've got to um, present a model box as well. And, you know, just like working on any other show, it takes quite, a, well, it can take as little or as long as it needs to. And it it was a lot of work because obviously I was like, this is a competition. It needs to be like spot on. And um, so it was a lot of work and it was incredibly gutting. But I did learn a huge amount from it. And and it also opened up relationships with like different people and venues at that time, which then I think gave me, you know, the experience that I needed to be able to come in and knock this one out of the park. Brilliant. I mean, I want to talk about that a bit later on because we've got ahead of ourselves slightly. I want to know about you growing up because uh, a little birdie told me that uh, you didn't want to become a a director. You wanted to actually become a celebrity chef. Is that right? (laughs) Um, I mean, I wanted to do everything, really. Uh, I think I still want to be a celebrity chef. Maybe not a celebrity chef. It's not too late. Well, it's not too late, no. Um, We'll see how the next show goes down. (laughs) (laughs) Are you a good chef? I, I I think so, and a lot of people have like compl- complimented the food that I've made for them. Um, yeah, I I like to cook a lot. I mean, it's hard to cook when you're a director because you have no time. There's, yeah, there's no time to. Well, that's nonsense. Actually, there is time, but you know. Well, so if there's a Roy Alexander Wise signature play, is there a Roy Alexander Wise signature dish? Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say like um, like a stewed chicken with macaroni and like salad or some veg. Very good. High protein. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so tell, me about, tell me about you growing up. Where did that happen? Where were you born? Um, I was born in London, um, in East London, actually. Um, but my family very quickly moved away from that horrendous area. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and moved to South London. So I was quite young when my family moved to South London uh, to Streatham for a bit and then to Brixton, which is where I spent, like, uh, the majority of my childhood. I'd say from about, like, four or five, from mm-hmm. nursery right up to, like, secondary school, 
A-levels. Um, I grew up in Brixton. And, um, uh, yeah, it, yeah, I've I've got some siblings and we just used to muck about a lot and, and make little plays in the front room and stuff like that. And I just, I, I, I always like knew I had a bit of a performance streak in me. Um, and I liked to argue a lot as well when I was quite young. And my family always said that I was going to be a lawyer. Hmm. And, um, I didn't. I that's just not in my nature. Well, it's the same it kind of performanceness in lawyer, in being a lawyer, as there is in being a being an actor or working in the arts. I guess. Yeah, I think I that. think so definitely, and especially because uh, the work that I make is like uh, generally quite driven by politics. Um, I find that that's my way of maybe satisfying that dream that I crushed mm-hmm. for my family. <laughs> um, so were they discouraging you from going into the arts then, or? Or what? Well, yeah, a little bit. You know, my family are um, Ghanaian and Jamaican, um, an immigrant family who, you know, really working class. Um, you know, we've kind of seen days where we've had, like, nothing to days that have got better, etc. But I think there is always that kind of um, anxiety when you are working class that one day you just won't have money. And as we know, it's really difficult to make money <clears throat> or substantial amounts of money in theatre. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you are working class, the one thing that you always want to strive to be is middle class, really, mm-hmm. and, and to have all of the things that you didn't have before. And obviously, that's something that isn't really guaranteed when you're a freelancer, when you're like constantly knocking on doors saying, can I do this show? Can I do... You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, So they weren't particularly pleased but I was like very very driven um to get into it and and I was really lucky because when I was younger I joined the youth theatre at Oval House Mm -hmm. which again is like a bit of a mad story um (laughs) I I went to a school called Archbishop Tennyson's in Oval and it's on the same road as Oval House Theatre I didn't know it was a theatre and um I left school one day and I needed to pee and I went into this building and then I went into the bathroom and then when I came out, they were like shoving flies in my face and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And they had like a pool table and stuff and I really liked pool and whatnot. And so I went along <clears throat> and at first I went to like singing classes um, and um, and I thought I was going to be a singer. See, like I said, I thought I was going to do everything. Um, so I thought I was going to be a singer. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, my family were also still like quite, not very happy about that but I found that there was um, I guess in theatre I could still fulfil those passions for music for words and stories I guess um, and then I just decided right I'm going to go to drama school and do a directing degree oh fantastic so where did you go to drama school uh, I went to Rose Bruford College mm-hmm. and I did a BA in directing um, and it was a three year course which sadly doesn't exist anymore that's um, real shame. Yeah, it is. Especially when they're churning, like, great directors like mm. Ola Ince. Mm. She came from that course as well. There's, like, a, a host of, like, brilliant, brilliant directors who have come out of that course. And it's, like, really, really intensive and really small class. So, like, in my year, there were, like, seven of us. I think in Ola's year, there were, like, five of them. Um, so you get, like, real quality time kind of with your tutors and working on projects and you get, like a show every year or two shows some t- some years and stuff like that but I guess it was really expensive to run so 
Uh, was it free for you to go to? No, it was not How much free was for it? me to go to. Um, luckily, I I caught like the last of the three grand a year. Mm. Um, Do you think that that's a huge barrier for for potential directors to, oh to study? Oh my gosh, yeah. Like, I mean, the money just comes out of my account, mm. like student loan. I, I just don't even look at it. I don't like... You can't bear to think about it. I can't bear to think about it how much money I would be paying back. And also, you know, again, coming from the background that I came from, I took out a maintenance grant as well because my family didn't have the money to, to kind of, like, put me up in a house or whatever. So all of those kind of costs and, you know... And I worked as well, like... What job did you do? <laughs> um, so I I was a, a drama facilitator at Oval okay. House for a bit. Um and then I worked in M&S Simply Food. Oh, very Clown good. South, um, which was cool because as a student, getting lots of, like, cheap, like, ridiculously cheap food, <laughs> like a whole chicken for, like, 50p, <laughs> stuff like that from, like, the staff shop. And actually, M&S is really good quality, so, like, you can freeze stuff and it's, like, all right. And yeah. it doesn't always... I mean, we don't really want like, this podcast to just no, be an advert no, for M&S. No, 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 I mean, yeah, it was... It was <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, so I, I worked retail. Um, and then I also worked in Gap, mm-hmm. folding jeans, thinking, is this my life? Like, every Saturday and Sunday. Uh, where else did I work? And you did this, these kind of jobs just to pay your way through, through, through your studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you know it was a director that you wanted to, to be rather than uh, a performer, a writer? Um, well, I, I was an actor for a while, and I've and I think even when I went into drama school, I thought I wanted to be an actor when I kind of came out the other side. Um, But actually, the moment when I realised that I wanted to be a director was uh, when I was offered an opportunity by a wonderful man called Nikolai Labarry, who now works at Lyric, um, who who said uh, he, he basically was given a kind of brief by this company um, who were running a project called There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. Um, and um, the brief was to find two young cultural leaders who will set up, like, a company to make a piece of work responding to the themes of the project There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, which was imperialism, migration, um, uh, home orientation, that kind of thing, identity. Um and so I was given this opportunity with a mate of mine called Zephyrin Tate, who's a fantastic actor, um, to make a piece of work. Um, and it's so funny because the people who were in that are like amazingly, like they're doing amazingly well. People like Shivani Seth, she's a brilliant actor who's in like Homeland. Uh, Steph O'Driscoll, who's like the um, artistic director of Nabokov. Um, uh, Adam and Dan Hipkin, who who joined kind of later on, who are associates at the Lyric and are uh, running a company called T Films. So like, yeah, it was like this opportunity, I guess, for us to have a voice and to create a piece of work. And I, for some reason, decided that I didn't want to act in it, but I wanted to write it and I wanted to direct it. And I, I always knew before then that when I was an actor, it didn't matter who, which director I was working with. I'd always be like, mm, nah, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the mm. right choice. Or, and so I had like a lot of opinions in terms of it. And, and uh, over the years, I've discovered, obviously, that's taste and that's um, interpretation. So, um, yeah, I think that was kind of when I realised that I wanted to do it. And then actually seeing it through from like 
creating the story, putting the company together, and then putting on the show. One, I realised I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, and that I was like, I guess my my arrogance at the time had like made me believe that I could do it very easily. Which is great, because in a way I kind of needed that to like have the audacity to even try it. Um, but then it, it made me kind of realise that there was a lot that I had to learn, um, which is why I decided to go to drama school. And so when you left Rose Bruford, what was the what was the next step? What was your first your first thing to do as a as a trainee director, as someone wanting to get into the trade? I came to the young bit. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And what did yeah. you do? Um so I did my uh final year work experience place work placement thingy, Bob. Um <laughs> here. And um I was assistant director to Ricky Henry mm-hmm. on his parallel production of The Government Inspector. So that's a production with, with young people based on yeah. the, the main house production. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was Ricky's assistant and like Ricky's like a really good mate of mine and we got on really well and it was really interesting. We came from like really different backgrounds um, and ways of getting into it and I, I learned like a massive amount. Um, and of course I was like, well, this is the Young Vic, so I was like determined to like mm-hmm. cling on. Um, so I just like... I was, I was like such a Kino and like a really goody two shoes and, <laughs> and like really buddied up with I guess like all of the people in the building but I, I also found it was just really easy to make those connections because it was a building that wanted to like having young directors wasn't like a hindrance it wasn't mm. like oh damn what do we give to these people to do it was like great let's find a way to you know so would you say that that's a piece of advice you'd give future young directors, which is that if you have the opportunity to work at the Young Vic or another theatre to just meet everybody, get to know everybody, become friends with everybody? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> to be honest, I don't think I would be where I am without having made the the friends and the family, I guess, that I would say now that I have in theatre. And, and I can see very clearly in my trajectory kind of being handed from one director to another as an assistant or somebody would just like write an email to this person then I'd have coffee and then I'd be working on their show and it literally kind of went like that um, for like the first three or four years fantastic yeah Um, and and again all of that kind of like started um, some of it was from the young Vic, but then also when I was doing this project, there ain't no black and Indian Jack. There was a director called Topher Campbell who um, I met, and and after doing this first um, project here at the young Vic, I went and worked with him for about six months um, as like an associate kind of like producer director, um, where I learnt like masses from him. <clears throat> I guess about the ways in which you um, make yourself kind of like current and relevant to to buildings and the way in which you kind of like market yourself to people and and he really kind of opened my eyes in terms of like learning that this is a business as well because mm. it's really hard in that stage where you are when you're young when it, it is a lot of fun and there is some responsibility but the fun far you know far outweighs the responsibility and and the kind of like money business mm. side of things that you don't quite realise what it is that you're getting yourself into. Um, and and again, working with the Young Vic, working with Topher at the Red Room, 
those kind of connections helped me to realize right okay so one it is a business so i need to find the ways in which to kind of like make myself available to people mm-hmm. um and make those connections and network and go to the theater as much and and be good to people and i suppose that realization that it's also a business helped to appease your family's uh, hesitancies towards it as a as an opportunity for you that once <laughs> once they know it's a business as well as uh, not just some sort of frivolous pastime they're more likely to um, support your continued work work in, in theater well <laughs> a, a bit i still think they don't really know what i do mm. i still think they don't really quite get it but you know uh being able to show them a Times review mm. with four stars on it. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I understand that. Or being able to, to like, say, go on the website and book some tickets mm. and they find out that they're sold out. And then it, it mm. extends and then it sells out again. They're like, you know, they get that. They understand that. So, so funnily enough, it feels like they just kind of gave me a bit of a bligh and was, you know, they were like, okay, well, he's obviously not going to, do anything else let's just let him get on with it you know but also like getting a degree for my family was like you know it was amazing for them and when I graduated at my graduation they were like screaming at the ceremony when they called my name out and it was like really embarrassing because you know lots of other like white middle class families sitting down really quiet and my family are, like waving handkerchiefs and screaming it was like but you know so so like there there were like a few markers along the way that I guess helped them to realise that that it is a proper job actually um, and that there is money to be made and that there are ways in which you can sustain yourself and, and you know they know that I work really hard and that I support myself and try as much as I can to support them too so those kind of things I guess did help to appease their anxiety about and you say that your your first experience of theatre was just going to the toilet at Oval House. And then, uh, so thinking about the actual physicality of buildings, places like the the Young Vic or the Royal Court or the Bush Theatre, just other theatres that you've you've worked at, was there anything intimidating about physically entering the building and having to become aware of the, the etiquette and the and the behaviour of the, the actual building, the geography of the place? Um, I... I didn't know it was a theatre. So... It kind of looked like any other building, and that kind of made everything okay. Mm. And I think the young Vic has that a lot about it too. You know, like a lot of my friends are like, "Oh, there's a theatre here," because <laughs> like they might work in the area and just mm. come here for a drink. So there is something like quite sexy and quite, uh, I guess, uh, unintimidating and quite um, open about buildings like here and like the bush. You know, the Royal Court definitely looks like a theatre. And, and like, even growing up, I mean, I've been lucky enough to work there as a training director for about a year and a half, but before then, I'd, like, go past on the bus and go, one day I might go there. But I, it, it just wasn't quite, um, I don't know, the, the building itself didn't quite make me mm. feel like... Because it, it just kind of looks a bit like, honestly, old England, mm. old money, old ways, old ideas... Obviously, then you step inside and you realise it's like completely the opposite. But, you know, and and there are lots of other theatres and buildings that kind of had that effect on me, actually, as a young man growing up. When I started to, like, go and watch other plays, I didn't watch a play, like... Every play that I watched was at Oval House until I was about 18 or 19. And I can't remember what the first play that I went to was. And I think the first time I watched a play in the West End, I was like... 
21 or 22. Um, and that was intimidating, mm. actually, going into, like, one of those massive Prozarch theatres. Mm. Just kept looking at the ceiling going, why? Yeah, with all the ushers dressed in bow ties yeah, and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, it was like, like yeah. why is this? Why? Oh, this is such a big deal. I thought we were just telling stories here. Yeah. Um, but, of course, you know, you, you kind of, like, learn that it is your place as well. And, and, and it, it, I you know, I still go to some theatres and, and kind of feel a bit intimidated. Or, or I'd, like, intentionally dress down. Mm. Um, so that I I kind of like feel like it's very okay to be myself mm. in in a space like that. So based on your experiences, then what do you think theatres or maybe audiences can do to make these less intimidating experiences to to make theatre and the actual buildings where theatre takes place more accessible, more open, and more free? In terms of the experience of walking into one, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think they could drop the bow ties a little bit. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, you know, t-shirts and yeah. polo shirts are a bit more friendly. Yeah. They don't make you feel like there's a dress code. Yeah, because you know, dress codes. You know, I remember going to like this dinner, and I got told that I couldn't go in if I wasn't wearing a blazer. And I was like, what? I just couldn't believe it. I was like shocked, and obviously, like, you know, you've got to have money to have a blazer. Yeah, and. And I think, like, it's the same with going into theatres. You know, you see a kind of dress code and you feel like, oh, am I not invited to this party? And I think that that, you know, I think in some ways, if theatres are able to informalise the experience somewhat, then it, it maybe might help. But then I also think, you know, the, the plain, simple thing of just programming more diverse work, you know, which is like a really obvious thing to say, but you know, programming diverse work, finding ways to lower your ticket prices. You know, there are lots of places that do that, like the Young Vic. <laughs> you know, the National do it a lot. Um, the Royal Court do it quite a bit as well now. You know, there are ways in which you can work to inspire younger audiences and and audiences from non kind of like theatre backgrounds to come into your venue um yeah i think because you can't like knock down these massive ornate <laughs> buildings they're really beautiful <laughs> they are but i think there is something about like the experience of walking in that could could potentially be eased a little bit you you mentioned the royal court there um i want to ask you about your experiences there because um there's a really impressive list of plays that you were assistant director on at the royal court <laughs> hangman x escaped alone you for me for you uh, Primetime 2015, Violence and Sun, Who Cares, Liberian Girl. There's a, these are really big plays that you were assistant on. How was that for you? Um, to be honest, it was like the most... Um, it was like the most humbling experience, to be honest. Working with, you know, people like Martin McDonough, <laughs> <laughs> whose name I only like read on the front of a play cover before. Carol Churchill I mean I hope she doesn't hear this but when I was in school because of how revered she was I thought that she was like a dead writer like, I didn't <laughs> think she was alive um, but that was like when I was like 16 sorry you can cut that out <laughs> but I didn't think and I love Carol and like we're, we're friends now hey Carol um, but you know I, I just didn't know who she was but I, I knew that I thought her work was fantastic and then I'm suddenly like sat in a room with Carol Churchill, I'm like, what the... You know, James McDonald, Vicky Featherston, who's just like, 
a powerhouse who's mm. inspired me so much, you know, Hamish Piri, who was like my boss effectively, um, you know, Matthew Dunstar, all of these people who, you know, gave me so much in terms of like how we do the thing that we do, um, you know, their craft and their skill, their ease, you know, all of those things are so much, so, so much to learn from. Um, and, but it was tiring as well. Because there were moments when I was like working on like three shows at once, you know, oh. Hangmen in the West End, um, Escaped Alone in the main house, uh, and then rehearsing X. And so it's just like, it was insane. It was like really, really draining, really tiring, but you know, it was that good kind of tired. Good, I think. Good. And then, what about directing your your own work? First of all, at the Finborough with um, Stoneface. Mm. That was your debut play, was yeah. it that you uh, directed? What was that? How was that for you? Um, it was. Uh, it was brilliant. I. Um, I think after all of those years of watching everybody do the one thing that I wanted to do in the world, I was just finally like, yes. <laughs> So I can choose a team and I can cast the actors and I can, you know, work on the design with the designer. And, you know, it was it was like a dream. It was really, really amazing. And um, I worked with some really, really brilliant young people who also kind of like had fierce ambitions. And, you know, the designer that I worked with, Lauren Elstein, she was... I met her at the Royal Court working on Liberian Girl and on Hangman because she was Anna Fleischler's um, associate designer. So, like, you know, again, we're in the same boat kind of going, yeah, you know, we're doing this because we want to learn and make the contacts and find a way to make our break. And then I, you know, mm. got this show with Eve Lee, who... Fantastic writer who I've known for a few years and we, we've, like, got like a proper work crush on each other. Like we just love each other's work. So it was like a dream to work on a play that I really, really loved and that I thought was really important. And then to say, hey, Lauren, let's do this show together. Um, and um, yeah, it was it was just brilliant. And the Fimbra was great. Um, it was lovely to kind of like, after the show mm. opened, read some reviews that seemed pretty cool. Cause you know, it was really nerve wracking that idea that like, Somebody's now going to come who, you know, somebody who has nothing to do with the process whatsoever, doesn't know you like from Adam, is going to come in and watch your work and then write about you. <laughs> but they were really generous and, and I was um, really pleased about that. And and it's really weird because it happened around the same time that I found out I was, that I got the JMK and that I was going to be directing The Mountaintop here at The Young Vic. And um, that kind of did make things momentarily like calm down a little bit it did make me go mm. okay I don't know of course there is that expectation it's the JMK award it's the Young Vic but it made me kind of not that I need validation mm. from like reviews um, but you know when across the board generally people are going yeah this guy's alright then I kind of go phew okay that's do you read reviews? um <laughs> well, I've only had two opportunities okay. to read reviews. On Stoneface, I did because, um, you know, we wanted to find ways in which to kind of, like, boost ticket sales, you know, because that's one thing that we we can't deny they are good for. On the mountaintop, actually, um, after we opened for, like, a couple of days, I didn't. But my agent, 
kept like texting me quotes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> they said that. And then like a few days later, I kind of like sat down and like read through them. And, and um, I don't know, I guess I also had a fear that people wouldn't get the play or or what what it really wanted to talk, to talk about mm. and what our production wanted to say like now and the urgency that we wanted to have because it is one of those plays where you know if you if you if you do come away going mm, then obviously there's there's like <laughs> a slightly like psychopathic element to your character okay, okay well let's talk about that then the mountaintop <laughs> then um for people that don't know what what is that play about um so the mountaintop is um a fictional account of the eve of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, assassination, um, in which a maid, uh, he orders coffee and this maid comes to deliver him coffee and um, they're really attracted to each other and throughout the night they kind of talk about the experience of being uh, alive and being black and talk about what social changes and how it comes about. And I mean, I make it sound really boring, but it's hilarious. <laughs> it's like, one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life but it's also incredibly moving and it's one of the only plays I think that I've read that has actually moved me to tears but I mean like just just reading it moved yeah, you to tears weeping is that why you chose it oh my god yeah and I had no idea what I was going to do I had no idea what the concept was what my production would be what I'd be focusing on but I I just I just said that there is no other play right now that speaks for me in the way that this play does when was that play written do you know uh it was written in 2000 and well i know katori started writing it in 2007 i think it was first on in 2008 okay. which was around the time that obama was like kind of in the race and kind of doing pretty well <laughs> um i only ask because it's um sadly and depressingly topical and relevant isn't it more so probably now than it was before you know there's a line um about like the idea of black presidents and of course like having obama like right at the threshold of of like of like probably one of the biggest changes that our world had had ever seen it was like you know i guess it was really moving and really hopeful and now you know <laughs> so you as a young, politicised black man, do you think having a black president has changed anything or was it purely symbolic? Um, well, I think we, we all realise how the difficulty that Obama has faced because I guess a president, a prime minister is also kind of led, guided by a political party. Um, we've seen how political parties can kind of like really... Uh, have an impact, I guess, you know, with things like Brexit. Um, so, you know, we realise that they're a figurehead, but I think we definitely, we definitely imposed a lot of hope on Obama. And so there was a lot of kind of pressure on him to, to kind of do a lot more. Um, and, and he's, you know, done some really amazing things for America. And and that have hope that hopefully will also influence the rest of the world's decisions. But I think you know there are a lot of people who are really disheartened by the fact that he hasn't actually been able to pass any law, make any change to the law and order with regards to 
the systematic destruction of black bodies. You know, there nothing. There's kind of been a rise in in unjust killings by police power. Um, there have been a few more, kind of like brought to justice, but it, it's just bizarre that it's not actually stopping police officers from doing anything. It's not. It's not like. It doesn't feel as if he has during his two terms had I guess the power to kind of like influence you know and I think that yeah you know America is such a complex country you know what it what you know they're fundamentally based on capitalism etc it is really really tough to kind of like I guess throw out the one thing that taught them how to be capitalists and 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 so that you know, there's a massive kind of like. I don't know. It's uh, very frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, it's really frustrating. You mentioned Brexit there very briefly, and I just remember a personal anecdote how disempowered and voiceless I felt following the the result I, I voted uh, remain. Um, do you think that theatre or the arts can be a vehicle to heal these wounds that we've got in this country now, and oh, yeah, these, this this yeah. fragmentation that we're seeing? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a place in which we come and see ourselves, you know, and 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 like the mountaintop, it, it teaches so much, uh, even though it is like, you know, really quite heavy in terms of the politics. It's really entertaining. It's really alluring because of, of that kind of entertainment factor. Um, but, it, you know, it's a play that really, really teaches. It really teaches its audiences about about ourselves, about fear, about the reasons why, you know, we may have responded in the ways that we have, you know. The fact that, you know, they were talking about, like, where money is going whilst we're in the EU, that makes people afraid, you know. And the play talks a lot about fear. The play talks a lot about, you know, the way in which we treat the other, the way in which we try and understand one another. And, and you know, I really feel like theatre does have that ability to have that really profound kind of, like, visceral effect on an audience, you know, where they really feel and can empathise but also can learn about, you know, what it is that we may, we might need to do in order to move forward, I think. I've seen your production of The Mountaintop and it's really fantastic. I've really enjoyed it and I felt really mobilised and empowered by watching it. It reminded me a bit of seeing the film Pride and leaving feeling activated and wanting to see change happen and, and make change happen. And I won't say too much about it in case anyone uh, is going to see it, but at the end you incorporate wider um, social movements and equality campaigns in particular around gay equality and the, and and Harvey Milk. Why did you decide to uh, widen the net so that it wasn't just about the civil rights movement? Um, so part of that is in the play, um, but very specific to those times. Um, but I think um, the reason why we decided to do that is because, um, you know, that was something that Dr. King was really trying to, like, um, activate within, you know, people, this idea of, like, understanding that the the experience of marginalized people is one and the same. It's generally like a common oppressor. Um, and, um, you know, I remember like the day that I realized that I knew what feminism was about and, and what the experience of women was, was when I realized that I was black and how 
potentially limiting my blackness was, I guess, in terms of like the life that I live uh, and what it meant to other people. Um, and that, that, you know, felt like a really profound kind of like awakening for me. And, and I feel as if there is, um, you know, people, people will always, people always have the capacity to empathize and to understand through empathy, through feeling, through understanding, uh, I guess what that emotional kind of like, uh, journey is. And I think if we are able to allow people to, to kind of like see in some way how a small part of their life is kind of like maybe mirrored in somebody else's, it helps people to understand, I guess, what it is that, you know, that we're talking about. Because I think a lot of people are like, well, I don't know, what do I do? I'm not black. I, you know, I I didn't like own slaves. I'm not oppressing anybody. And, and I think... I think a lot of people don't quite know that I think the sheer act of attempting to understand is enough because it means that we're then more empowered to kind of talk about it. We're more empowered to teach our children about it. Um, therefore, n like, not perpetuating these ideas, hopefully. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And, and do you think that um, a play like The Mountaintop or, say, the works of Barry Keefe, plays like Sus, these need to be directed by a black director because uh, it is a black voice which is more authentic in, in understanding these these struggles towards equality? Um, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why I'd say yes. Well, one, yes, because... Uh, because of exactly what you've said, you know, that uh, that authenticity, you know, um, people have said to me that watching The Mountaintop, they can really hear my rage, they can really hear the urgency with which I kind of want to see change, you know. Um, and I think, you know, of course, there's little things like, you know, the references to, from the play, you know, that I might understand um, a bit better than, than potentially, like, another director. But... Um, the other reason for that is is there are like so few opportunities for black directors you know uh plays about the black experience um are more than often offered to white directors and um so you know black directors are kind of always left a few paces behind because they're not given the opportunity to, you know, keep cutting their teeth, keep working, keep advancing their skill um, as directors because nobody takes, like, a typical story about love and goes, yep, it needs to be for, for that black director, you know. But then when there is a play about the black experience, they, you know, sometimes they are considered, but, you know, a lot of the time not. And I think there are a lot of people who, who don't quite realise just how many brilliant and talented uh, black and uh, other ethnic minority directors there are out there um, but also you know that idea of like the opportunity to work and to work on, on different scales mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that enables you to become a great director if you're not doing it then then you can't ever get better at it you know but, but do you think that it's a question of all um, black and ethnic minority directors should be able to direct all plays, but also um, black and ethnic minority directors should direct plays which are about those particular issues. Um, I think... I think the reason why um, 
people like myself and other directors that I know are really hung up on or, or I guess really insistent that black directors need to direct the plays of their own experience is because there aren't enough of those opportunities um, to direct the other plays mm. about other experiences. And then furthermore, when those plays about your experience do come up, they're often directed by somebody who isn't like of that experience. So that's like, I'm sure that you can imagine it's a, a massively frustrating thing. Um, and, you know, I feel like buildings need to do so much more work in terms of discovering what is out there and who is out there. You know, on the mountaintop, I I wanted to have a massively diverse team. I knew that the one thing that I hated about being an assistant director is that more than often, I'd be the one black person in the room, you know? And, and it was like, mm. you know, it, it's really hard on those days when you're, I guess, not feeling as, you know, confident or as high about things to go, you know, Will, will this ever change? Will I ever be able to really sit in that seat and really be appreciated for the work that I can make? And and so I said, you know, to myself, I definitely want to have a really diverse room. And I think, you know, backstage is a real problem in terms of diversity, you know. Um, so I said to the whole team, to the producers, like, we need to find a backstage manager. And we did, you know. And she did, you know, she doesn't live in London, but we found a way to get her here and to work with us and it's been amazing and she has said as well it's the first time that she's ever worked on a production where she's not the only black person in the room and there is something really empowering about that because you know it removes those ideas of tokenism mm. what that is because tokenism is such you know tokenism and and quotas etc you know and Cobner Holbrook Smith so he once said that quotas are brilliant because they interrupt you know the kind of like historical kind of fashions patterns of institutions because institutions you know they work on the basis that they like you know maintain uh, and conserve their their kind of like principles mm. and so quotas are are there to kind of interrupt mm. that which is brilliant but as brilliant as it is that you are able to get, uh, you know, that positive discrimination, I guess, allows you to be in those rooms or, or to work with these people, you know, you are still left with that idea of, like, your own ability mm. and whether you are actually there because you're good or whether you're there because you're black and, and nobody wants to be there just because they're black. You know, we all want to be good. We all want to be... Um, we all want to achieve the things that we do based on, you know, our merit and our worth and the work that we do, you know. Well, I spoke to Shami Chakrabarti about this, who was the chair of the Act for Change uh, debate, which happened at the Young Vic on the 18th of October. And she said, as an Asian woman, that she didn't see herself as a token, she saw herself as a beacon, i.e. the other, mm. in her case, Asian women see her as a high-profile Asian mm. woman and therefore realise that they are they can also do that. So it's yeah. not a question of being installed by the white status quo. It's yeah. a question of being a magnet for other people to realise that those doors can be open. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it, 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 again, like when I worked on Primetime at the Royal Court, it was a show, you know, amazing, amazing project where children write plays 
and they're performed by professional actors with like a you know full on production really well supported um and we go to schools in outer london with like various kind of like diverse communities and again another thing that i said is we've got to have a male stage manager mm. and we've got to have a black stage manager and the casting had to reflect those communities that we were going into because you know, if I knew that there were black directors, I definitely wouldn't have like had half the anxiety and fear that I did when I was like a younger director. And, you know, when I was at drama school, I was like the one black person in my class. And for about a year, the thought tormented me about whether I was there because I was a token or whether I was there because I was good. Um, you know, and there were always patterns that you could see and you see them in loads of drama schools as well. They might have an acting course where they might have two black actors and then they'll have another course, you know. And so so you can't help but think those things, especially when, you know, you're in environments where people are potentially coming to London for the first time and, and carry, like, very kind of, like, old ideals. We're, we're in such a unique position living in London because, like... Again, you know, things like Brexit taught us that, like, beyond London, it's a very different world mm. and people have very different beliefs and very different understandings of the way in which our society works. And so, like, you know, people come with, like, different understandings of who you are and, you know, you know, people asking questions about, like, my background. You know, I remember once being at drama school and somebody saying, why are all the black people so loud? And I was just like, what the actual, mm. you know... And and things like that just kind of like, you know, because you are essentially you're you're sitting and working whilst you're at drama school with the industry that you are going to go into, mm. and 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 that is a reflection of like, I guess, what the industry will be. And if you're kind of sitting around with these people, you're kind of like really making you question your validity as a person as an artist because of the way that you look and because you know they have a different experience to you it's really like terrifying um and so so you know i really really wanted to make a a point with the casting with the the personnel that worked on that show because they were all in full view all the time i wanted these children to see that you could be black or asian or white or Chinese, you know, whatever. You could be whoever you wanted to be. And there, hopefully, by the time that you get older, there will be a place waiting and ready for you to, to kind of take up, you know, whatever role it is that you want to as an artist. You mentioned casting. I want to ask you about one particular casting which uh, delighted everybody at the Olympic. (laughs) You know where I'm going with this. I know where you're going. (laughs) Which is when you, as director, cast the Young Vic's Genesis uh, fellow Bolahan Obisessan as Dr. King in The Mountaintop. Now, you've got a really uh, long relationship with Bolahan, haven't you? Can you just tell us what that is? Um, So, uh, I mean... I've always kind of like known who Bolaham was. I I remember I first met him flyering outside the Young Vic actually, and I can't remember You're not what, to fly what show it was. Vic. No, this was years okay. ago. <laughs> no, this was a very long time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's fine now. He's like associate director, here, so he, 
you know, that's in the past. But yeah, so I met him then and had a really brief conversation with him. And I've always thought he was like very serious and and I always admired like his like strength of character, etc. Um, and then about like three years ago, no, two years ago, I assisted him on a play at the Bush where I was the BBC Theatre Fellow. We are proud um, to present. We are proud yeah. to present. Should I say the whole title? Go on then. Can you remember it? Yep, I can. <laughs> and I hope Bolahan will be really proud of this because he was like, everyone needs to say the whole title and really mean it. So it was, we are proud to present a presentation of the Herero of Namibia, formerly known as Southwest Africa of the German Sudwest Africa between the years 1884 to 1950. Very good. <laughs> I'm really pleased. I hope you're proud, Bolahan. Um, and yeah, so so I worked as his assistant director on that and um, we got on really well. And um, I remember then thinking, he looks a lot like Martin Luther King. But I mean, there was like no reason why I should have said it. Um, so it was kind of like in passing. And then, um, <laughs> of course, the play comes about and I won the award and him being kind of like, I guess, privy to that information, being associate director here. He called me up and he like congratulated me and was like, you know, well done, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, I really want you to see me for the part of Dr. King. And I was like, what? Really? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I really want, you know, I, I, I love this part. I've always wanted to play this part. I was like, okay. And, um, you know, I'd heard that he was um, an actor before and some people were like, oh yeah, he was really good actually. But, you know, he's not been on stage for a while and he's done, like, a couple of short films, that kind of thing, but nothing of this scale. And then to take on, like, I guess, the part of, like, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the play, The Mountaintop, award, Olivier award-winning play, mm. The Mountaintop, it's, like, at the Young Vic, you know, it's, a, it's like, quite a big deal. Um, so based on your previous relationship with him, where he was the director, you were the assistant, were you nervous um, at all at directing him in the rehearsal room? Um, to be honest, uh, I wasn't, because I know that we have a lot of respect for each other. Um, however, I did get a lot of warning, and when that came, I was <laughs> like, "Oh, okay, maybe there is something in this. And of course there is, because, you know, if you spend, like, all of your time as the director, it's really difficult to kind of, like, tune out that voice, uh, you know, I mean, you can't. So so there's a massive kind of, I imagine for him, it must have been a really difficult game of censorship <laughs> that he was kind of playing in terms of like when to like speak and when not to speak. And, and you know, sometimes it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> he knows that, I know that, we all know that. Um, and sometimes we, you know, didn't agree, but you know, it's not, for me, it wasn't any different to what I'd imagine it would have been like for Michael Sheen and Ian Rickson working mm. on Hamlet. You know, when you work with those actors who who have really big vision, those actors who also conceive those projects mm. are going, I'm going to do this, mm. I want you to... You know, they are often actors who have big vision, great ideas, um, and, a, and a real kind of, like, you know, real leadership qualities about them. You know, they are the actors who are able to lead a whole company, who who are able to inspire, you know, the young person playing guard number three and and also whoever else is on stage with them. You know, they hold everything together on that stage. 
and um and he has you know that quality about him um and so you know it was really interesting kind of discovering that dynamic and and working things out and having arguments and hugging at lunchtime mm. and uh but like you know <laughs> i mean sorry if anybody else is listening but there was nobody else that that could give me i guess you know that truth that kind of like fierce kind of like political thinking the intellectual kind mm. of like um quality of his kind of like speech uh, as in Bolahan, as well as mm. Martin Luther King, you know, that passion, like, you know, if you ever, he seems really laid back, Bolahan, but like, when you get into, you you know, when you really engage with a, a, a kind of like, big kind of like topic with him, he's, he's so mm. fired up and so revved up and you hear a voice, you hear like a vision that you don't often hear. And, you know, the play is asking for us initially to see the Martin Luther King that we never saw, who was, like, really charming and quite sexy um, and, and like, kind of is, you know, smoking, is a little bit depressed, you know. It's just like any other man could be. Mm. Um, and he, you know, he... We discovered in, like, auditions and, and he had a, an hour and a half recall, actually, <laughs> um, which was, like, cool, quite tough for him but you know I really wanted to see how it would work um, but you know he he <laughs> we we saw him actually so we saw him um, for his first audition and he had <laughs> he hadn't told anybody in the building um, that he was like apart from maybe David and he'd shaved his beard and left a moustache and he wore a tie a white shirt some chinos and black shoes and I came, he came into the room and I looked at Arthur, the casting director, and I reached for my black my bag and I took the playtext out and I put it next to his face and I was like, bruv. Cause he like I mean, the resemblance was like uncanny. It was crazy how much he looked like him. So that was one thing. Um but then, you know, I, I think I just couldn't quite get over the fact that he looked a lot like him and that he found a way to like, you know, really imitate you know that that vibrato, the vibrato in his voice, the the kind of like learned preacher, Baptist preacher style kind of like voice. So then we called him back, and his callback was about an hour and a half, which is like I don't think I've ever heard of something so long. But you know, we just wanted to kind of like see what he was capable of, and and you know, in the past I know that I've kind of like. Um, made some casting decisions and gone, ah, oh, I didn't check this and I didn't check that and uh, and kind of gone, oh. So I just wanted to, like, for myself, be really sure that he was the right person. And also, I think because we realised that him not being on stage for a while would mean that it would be, like, a lot of work, but I wanted to see at least that, like, we'd be able to get there. And, um, you know, he had such a charm about him that I didn't realise, you know, and he just... He could just switch it on. And, of course, I wouldn't ever see that because, like, he wouldn't be, like, trying to charm me because I'm his <laughs> mate. But, you know, and, and you know, we just needed to see the, the human side of Martin Luther King, the guy who's a little bit depressed sometimes, the guy who thinks too much and, and isn't as confident as the political leader that we see with his arms outstretched over Washington Mall, you know. Um, and and Bolahan kind of gave me a vulnerability that... Um, 
I can't imagine um, anybody else could give me, ch- you know, matched with that charm mm. and and with that um, passion and that fire as well. That's a fantastic piece of casting, isn't it? He's a gives a yeah, really great he's, performance. Yeah, I mean, it took us a while, and I think <laughs> there were various moments where, and he's said as well where he thought, I don't know if I, you know was going to get there and and moments of course when I've gone mm-hmm. you know but we we just really pushed each other and you know Ronke has been so instrumental to this as well she's like such a force and she's so positive and so energetic and she was really patient with us both when when Bolehan and I have our big like ego trips and <laughs> decide to argue with each other um but you know we we as a company we found like such love for each other on day 1 and that's stayed since, like, you know, and I think we're going to remain as, like, great, great friends, like, forevermore. And when does the mountaintop end? Well, it was supposed to end on the 29th of October, which Mm. is this Saturday, but we were given an extension to uh, six extra performances to the 3rd of November. Um, But it's sold out. (laughs) Fantastic. Twice. Fantastic. But what about you after that then? So come the 6th of November. Okay, so um, I'm I'm doing a couple of things. So I'm working with a company called Cellador who, you know, produced like the Green Day musical and stuff and, and they make lots of work trying to engage with different audiences all over the country. Um, they're doing a project um, for first-time writers in Greenwich. So I've got a massive task of directing four actors in 10 10-minute plays. Wow in seven days and then they're performed over two nights um, to the people of Greenwich in the new studio um, that they are um, opening and I think we're the first production in there Um, and then um, I am going back to the Royal Court to take the Carol Churchill play um, Escaped Alone on tour um, and support that production uh, in London uh, and around um, and then uh, I'm also currently working with a company called Young and Talented, like a stage and screen school for young people. Um, and we're direct. I am directing a play um, called Zero for the Young Dudes by Alistair McDowell, which is a National Theatre Connections play. Um, and it's like brilliant um, working with these young people, really trying to politicise them. Um, and then some other stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about. <laughs> And then, like, lots of meetings and lots of coffee um, with lots of really interesting people. Well, you're an interesting person yourself, and congratulations Thank with you the rest. That's really brilliant. So and thanks you. for chatting this afternoon. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> they can't see it at home. Royal Alexander Weiss, thank you for chatting this afternoon. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.